Okay. Here we are. Welcome to another episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. I'm your host, Paul Randack, and I'm here today with my friend, family member, <laughs> colleague. <laughs> Fellow podcaster. That Fellow podcaster, actually. Yes. Um, and... Uh, an all-around great guy, Trip Mitchell. Trip, thanks for being here today. I'm delighted, and uh, this is the nicest podcast studio I've ever been in, and I've been in a bunch, and they're typically shitholes. Mine is located in just a horrible building that bands hang out in, and just had a meeting with a guy who started a new brewery. Oh. Just down the street and made a pitch to him to move our podcast studio there. And so people can come in and do podcasts. Uh, you know, if they build up an audience, come in and do it once a month. Uh-huh. And then the brewery would love to have fans come in. And what I find with our podcast is that if you have an audience, the show goes poorly. Because you end up... Ours, you, mean a, you mean a live audience. Yeah, live audience. Are, yeah, If you've got no audience, it goes poorly also. But if you're trying to play to your crowd and we're a comedy podcast, it is just it just doesn't work. You need to kind of focus in, get, right. get through what you guys do as a show, and then try to get laughs. Yeah, okay. And so we're probably not. So we've been uh, invited to work a couple of clubs, and I've had to put the brakes on that. And just because... We're not good enough. I see. To be able to just focus. Because you want to please a crowd. If you're an entertainer, you want to do that. Yours is a little smarter. Yeah. Well, and I, I, so, you know, my experience of you is you are good enough and you are smart enough and gosh darn it, people like you. So, um, st- taking a line from Stuart Smalley. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say. It didn't work out for the guy who wrote that, did it? No, not so well. You know, at, okay, changing the second. I apologize for this. Last hijack here. Al Franken. Uh-huh. He got so screwed in this whole Me Too movement. Yeah, he what did. he did, it was so, and it was juvenile, and but he literally is a great guy, and he resigned, and he's looking back now at all these people who've done such horrible things, uh-huh. and uh, some, you know, I've interviewed Trump before, and Trump was a dirtbag then, he's dirtbag now. <laughs> Uh, how, how do you real feel, really feel, Trip? <laughs> well, he's just a horrible human being, and, and we'll be lucky if he's gone. But I've lost so many bets. <laughs> you, right. But a friend of yeah. mine who... Uh, who those, those liberal Northeasterners, yes, they, 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 they've made a lot of bets. <laughs> oh, God, it, it's horrible. But my buddy who works at the AA Central Office came over to my office today mm-hmm. and said, uh, he's so excited. And I go, why? He goes... Chappaquiddick, the feel-good movie of the summer. <laughs> so I Wild needed, Nights of Ted Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, and you'll see this when you get home. I uh, went to Home Depot's site and uh-huh. found you can get a 20-foot ladder for $119. You can buy 10 feet, worth, 20 feet of Oh, I actually $10. saw this. I yeah. saw this today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 1,600 ladders <laughs> and 1,620 feet things of rope. So every mile of this wall, you can get it for $600,000, and Trump wants to build a $22 billion wall. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the thing that generic, or kind of in regard to this this show, is the fact that Trump has been trying to gut Obamacare. Right. And Obamacare has been substance abuse is part and parcel, has made Obamacare what it, what it is. I mean, it's allowed people... How many millions it's, of people around this country have a substance issue that 
we deserve treatment. Well, and, and up until Obamacare did not get treatment. Exactly. That, the bottom line fact is that the mil, actually millions, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, it's millions of people that did not have treatment before, did not have access to those services, all were able to get it because of the, the parity law. I mean, they were able to, um, afford most of them that, that were, you know, that had access to Obamacare or the, you know, the health exchange to, to, you know, change that. Now that didn't just change for Obamacare, it changed for private insurance through business and as well, because but that became part of the prerequisites y- of the. And Paul, you might not get sober, get clean your first time through, mm. but for people to get access and, as a member of AA, I see it every day. I hear it. You know, people don't get clean the first time. Some do. Some people... The majority don't. The majority yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, 40 to 50% go through treatment, you know, and this is your industry, so you know better than I, but at least get the tools to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly true. And if you don't go to that first meeting or you don't go to rehab, you're not going to have any clue as to how to get sober, get clean, and... These people, and it, it's, you know, and it's a shame that there wasn't a name for a group of people who make decisions that hurt the majority. Oh, there is. They're called Republicans. <laughs> oh. But literally. Wah, wah, wah. But the thing is, is that we're a nation of 300 million people, uh-huh. and a lot of us have problems. That's and true. if you just toss those people out. Mm-hmm. You were doing such a disservice, and now, you know, with the opioid challenge, we're at least looking at it. The epidemic. But there was a sheriff in southern Ohio who refused his deputies to carry the equipment to save. Yeah, to the Narcan. Yeah, you know, and, you know, it's just... And I guarantee you that guy thinks of himself as being a good Christian. You're right. Guarantee. Right, yeah. You know, he's running for That's sheriff right. in southern Ohio. He's well, got to be. Yeah. If, well, we don't want to. We, we want to save and protect and serve and protect. But we don't. Not the junkies. Not the people that have issues with with opiates, whether it be heroin and or, you know, prescription pain. Well, and, and here's the situation is that finally we're you're in particular in an industry that half the people you talk to are going to fail. That's true. And that is just a crappy, you know, the percentages are bad. And why we don't invest more into treatment, into analyzing, into saving this, because what a resource. You know, you've got people all across the spectrum. You've Mm -hmm. got people who could be potentially coming up with a cure for cancer or developing the next rocket. I mean, we're, we're losing a lot of people in this country. And lately, we've been looking at doing great things. And as an AA member, I look at AA as being one of the better programs. But people don't have the tools to know they need. You know, very few people just walk in the door. Probably in our group, my home group, half the people got there from treatment. That's, that's probably about right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so you have an opportunity um, to, to learn and to at least spend a couple hours a day working on yourself, whether you're, if you're not an in-treatment facility. And... So from a, a political to circle back. <laughs> we you know, are going to come back to the beginning here any moment now. Yeah, I know. And, and <laughs> as a former radio uh, talk radio person, um, I. It, but you've been on the radio. <laughs> so uh, 
<laughs> after uh, after being in the business for a number of years before I switched to TV because I get fired less, um, <laughs> it's hard to be asked questions. So as you know, and I've just taken a so, so why don't so, we get started? So let's let's we'll bring it let's thinking. bring it full circle. Okay. So uh, but these are all important issues, and and we can talk about whatever we want here. That's the great. There are no rules in the sense of what we talk about, um, but we do try to let the people get to know your story and your journey um, and and how you are just like the rest of us, just another bozo on the bus, trying to figure your life out, your story out, trying to, do, you know, come to identify with who you are and those different aspects of who you have become and and let's let the let's let our listeners learn. So, tell us your story. How did this How did this begin for you? Um, so I'm a, a son of my mother was an alcoholic confirmed. My dad was an alcoholic, but never never you know he's a very high functioning alcoholic. Sure, never missed work. Never yeah. showed but, up every day. Did what he was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, drinking was never really an issue until my. Um, and I quit a lot. So literally, I quit for seven years one mm-hmm. time, and then I turned eight and <laughs> it went, downhill. <laughs> went downhill from there. I was, you know, when you have a really shitty joke, you look to see if it's going to work or not. And you had no hint of recognition. Well, I was, I mean, I was wondering if you were talking about breast milk. <laughs> no, no, yeah, exactly. So I, I think, and I was probably not a. I drank a lot, but it probably didn't start to impair function until probably my late 30s. And uh, it definitely impaired function. But, you know, if you're a, a functioning alcoholic, you can keep it hidden. And uh-huh. I think it, in my case, I really worked on keeping it hidden. In certain ways, you can keep it hidden. But, you know, p- people know. And I think part of being um, an addict is you don't really have a sense that you're that other people know. Now, um, my some of my bozo moves, to <laughs> paraphrase your name, I did, I was doing a football game at the University of Nevada <laughs> on TV, and my job was being the color announcer. So they give you a thing called a telestrator, which is, if you've watched a game on TV, you'll notice the announcer is drawing. They'll show the sure. 22 players lined up on the field. Uh-huh. And the color announcer will say, well, this guy's doing a flag route. <laughs> the safety is pressing, all this stuff. I uh, used to drink on air. <laughs> and uh, I started. Really? Yeah. And I probably went a little overboard because I started drawing a little too much. <laughs> and then I drew a penis on air. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's when I get yelled at. But when I started, and so this is probably late 30s, when I started doing national radio, we drank on air quite a bit. And Would you say it was it was a normal thing to do for the announcers? Oh, pff, everyone's okay. bombed. Okay. Yeah, no, no. I mean, no, it's... So you heard jokes about except how... Jim, except Jim Nance. Is no, Jim Nance, yeah. You don't have to worry about him. He's a good... He went to good... University of Houston, but he was a good Christian because uh-huh. you knew him when he was up here. Yeah, I knew him when Salt he was Lake. here. Yeah. And, but anyway, um, we used to do a national show in the from Las Vegas, and it would come on at 6 o'clock in Ve- mm-hmm. Vegas, but 9 o'clock in New York, and it was the wrap-up show. And we would go down. We didn't drink in the studio. I had standards. But there was a bar. We'd have nine minutes at the top of the hour, so we'd go off the air 
was a national show, so it was on maybe 150 cities. And we would go off at four minutes to the top of the hour and then come back on at roughly five minutes after. So we had nine minutes to go to the bar next door. <laughs> and our producer would call, and we'd have a shot and a beer lined up. It'd be ready for you. Yeah, we'd yeah. run out of the studio, go next door, and which is fine if you're doing an evening show. It's not fine. It, you're, but <laughs> no, never got any. I, I understand what you said. Fine. I, I understand how you're using that loosely. And, and here's, under the circumstances, here's the challenge, Paul. Is that a couple drinks as an addict? You think a couple drinks make you funny, mm-hmm. and it's like bowling. You know, we all look at a couple drinks, you're bowling well. Too many drinks, you draw penises on air in a live football game, which is not good. And and there were many shows where I would start. Is that on a blooper reel somewhere? Oh, you know, thank God this was before YouTube or. Oh, Oh. yeah, it really isn't. Most of my shenanigans. But so I would there were nights that I would start a segment, throw it to the round table. We had four drunks with me Uh and then just. Fall asleep, and uh, and that that was a what? challenge. And then when I got my uh, national morning show, uh, it became I would go on the air at three in Vegas, but it would be six in the morning New York, Boston, right. yeah. so the coast. And there were mornings I would always I'd wake up at two, but I would start drinking during the show. And oh my. Yeah, and but I never got caught, never got any flack. So it, people had to have known, or maybe it was a secret. Maybe my producers and staff were covering for me. I'm going to guess that somebody knew. I mean, usually, yeah. I mean, you know, somebody knows somewhere. So it became more of a problem, and it started hindering work performance. Hmm. But I had enablers. You know, my uh, business partner now on the TV station mm-hmm. and my boss then yelled at me for the penis thing. <laughs> but, it, you know, I think people put up with alcoholics. Uh-huh. And uh, in some ways it was almost accepted. Yeah, I think, in you know. In some ways it was part of, I mean, it is, it, I don't, I'm not trying to be trite or trivial, but in some ways it was almost part of our culture of that industry. Uh, definitely in broadcasting in some ways. No question. Yeah. And There used to be stories about... Um, God, Dick, Dick Norris is who I'm thinking of, um, who was the KSL uh, uh, anchor here in Utah. I was shy. I walked into the Canyon Inn and saw him playing, and I go, what the hell? How does a KSL anchor allowed to drink? Yeah, right. <laughs> that just, that... It was in his contract. The church has changed. <laughs> the, uh, it's, but it is. I mean, in the music industry, the, you know, your industry... It was crazy, and the day I'll tell you a music story. The day I quit cocaine, uh-huh. which never really was a serious issue, but you not know, like it was for me anyway. <laughs> but um, John Entwistle died doing coke at the Hard Rock, yeah. And my friend was the PR director there, and the next night she called. I remember her calling me, and she was she had spin that story, <laughs> and it was I believe on a. Thursday night, and the Who, I mean, it, they, it affected them strongly. They didn't play another gig till the following Monday. I'm going, at the time, I'm going, how in the hell is this? I mean, you know, but be that as it may, she told me I was driving to play hockey, about to do a line in the car on the way, and she called and said, it looks like John Entwistle died from cocaine. Oh. 
And she told me that, and I threw my vial out the window and never touched it since. Good for you. But it was not a huge issue. You know, it was recreation. But drinking was kind of the, the uh, you know, and, and I didn't drink and drive. I didn't. Well, I did when I lived here. <laughs> but I, I was very cognizant of that in all my years in Vegas. Because, you know, I would literally have two beers after hockey. And, mm-hmm. you know, my drinking was at home. And uh, But you, you get worse and worse. So I originally got sober 10 or 12 years ago. And incrementally would go back out. And so I've been in for a couple of years now. <laughs> and um, you never know if it's going to take. It's a scary, you know, it. So my my method for getting sober was AA. Mm-hmm. You're and, a 12-stepper. Yeah, and I had uh, two sponsors in Vegas who were very good. And uh, uh, funny story, my first <laughs> – so my buddy <laughs> – Anytime funny story well, my, and sponsors go together. My first sponsor was gay, and I got hired to go uh, be a sales manager for a TV station over in Hilo, Hawaii. And then subsequently, my boss there, he and I bought a TV station in Kona. Mm -hmm. But one point, and when I was over there working, I wouldn't drink. And then Kevin went back to the the mainland, and I had four days just to stay over in Kona at the Hilo Hawaiian, and I went on a bender. And every morning when the hotel gift shop would open at 8, I would go there to get a bottle of vodka. And the third day... The I, gift shop. Yeah, the gi- yeah. So third day I went and got a Men of Hawaii calendar. And the guy at the gift shop laughed. And I, I, I was hung over at that point at eight, you know. Mm-hmm. I had to wait for my, my booze. But I said to him, what, are you against gay people? And he goes, no. And he goes, you've been here every morning at opening time getting a bottle of vodka. I'm a little worried about you there. And I go, okay. You uh, that's why he's laughing. Exactly. Obviously, you have a problem. So subsequently. Um, Give shop therapy. The AA meeting was on the beach in Kona. Oh. At 12 noon, you go down to Old Airport Park and literally walk over to a... Uh, to a picnic table, and that's where your meeting is. And, you know, for many people, the God thing involved in AA can, some people take it, some don't, spiritual. Sure. You know, your higher power can be whatever you want. But when you're sitting on a beach in Kona, it's a little easier to... Uh, Look at that ocean. and Yeah, think that there is think, a higher power. Right, the spiritual ocean, so to speak, yes. So anyway, I've been through it. Um, Deb, my sister-in-law, you're former sister-in-law, mm-hmm. came out one point and dragged me to a meeting. She is involved in AA, and and <laughs> so she kind of got me back on the, the train. But I've been on and off, and, and for a lot of us, going back out, as it's called, is a part of life. I mean, there's some people who are incredibly lucky, and, and you've probably had someone go through treatment where literally they go through inpatient treatment for 30 days, mm-hmm. We call it well. It's rare thirty days, but yes. I mean that's that's the sta- that's the standard nowadays. But the, the, those that are most successful the first time are closer to sixty to ninety in residential or a combination of residential and and day treatment or something like that. So some people in AA don't look at the treatment inpatient treatment as being necessary. They call it the thirty thousand dollar big book, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. which is a cynical way. I mean, whatever gets you there. Yes. 
I mean, think about it, just from economic terms. No, I, I fully understand. I, yeah. I, I do. Yeah, I'm preaching to the converted here. Yeah, and and I also, I mean, and I know I just, I know I just gave you a copy of my book to read, and we would probably talk about this particular subject, but we can without having you read it because I really believe that embracing as many modalities as possible is like embracing, you know, learning different languages, learning how to speak to people in different languages. So there's an AA language, there's a smart recovery language, a refuge recovery language. Um, uh, there's a, a rational recovery language. I mean, they're all kind of different in their ways. And my goal and, and part of the reason why I wrote the book was to, instead of us looking at all the differences in everyone, different programs to start in these modalities and start looking at the similarities and stop being discriminatory against the others. Well, know. and exactly. I mean, if we were, if you look at religion, if we were all on another planet, uh-huh we would be very happy to see another human being. <laughs> we would be happy to see a giraffe, anyone from Earth. and Any any species from Earth, right? Yeah, and, you know, right now we fight over a lot of stuff, and when it comes to treatment, it's ludicrous. Yes, Whatever gets you through that next day without drugging or drinking yeah. is the most important thing because think about all the waste and all the bullshit. So to wrap up my uh, recovery, I'm, I'm not going to drink today. All right. <laughs> um but it's it's something that you know, it's it's super difficult and you never want to my opinion at least is most people who work with AA aren't going to drink on a day they go to the meeting. Now, usually that's usually. True. That's that's that's, that's However, a at my noon meeting today that people were talking about <laughs> drug deals in the parking lot over at the Lanos and so it it does happen but being, you know, conscious of it, there's no one ever is going to tell you you were more fun before. <laughs> the point is you were more fun before, but no one who cares for you is yeah, ever no going to say no, that. No, no, no one that truly does care. So in, and I know in your situation, we've been through some wild times. And, we, we have. And it, yeah. It, How old were you when we first met? Uh, probably, I can tell you exactly, 24. Wow. Yeah, so... So... 1981. 81. So, 37 so, years ago. Okay, so... Yeah, so, yeah, Patrick was born. Yep. So he was the, he was just the first Johnny young child. Johnny and Susan were not born. They were not born as of yet. That's yeah. right. That's right, because I actually I just remembered that you drove... I drove... You drove Mary to the airport for, No, to the hospital. The hospital. <laughs> it's a Freudian slip there. I saw Susan come out, and... Susan literally came out with a Budweiser and a cigarette <laughs> at LDS Hospital, and she she came out as a terror and has not looked back since. So when I moved back up to Salt Lake, I lived with Susan, and it was we were the worst house on the street. This is this is from Vegas, right? When yeah, you when I moved back Vegas, up, okay, yeah. Right, yeah, and. The neighbors used to walk by and look at it. We had a porch on 17th. Susan and Bob would repair their motorcycles in front. They had a tent there. And, oh, my God, we were we were the horrible neighbors. This was that nice little house. Just, it was a great that, that was a great neighborhood. Oh, and you had except the, for us. Except for you guys. And you were living in the basement, right? Yeah. Okay, I remember now. Yeah, and I had moved up, and uh, I remember... There's a beautiful coffee shop right on 17th and 30th. Uh-huh. 
and it is so cool and this grateful dead shop next door and i move back and i go god salt lake is so cool now and two days later i went to a chamber of commerce meeting in farmington uh-huh. and it was 49 white guys and one white woman uh-huh. and i go okay Salt Lake has gotten more progressive. Utah, not as much. No, that's right. That's right. But anyway, so in moving up here, I was still drinking on and off. And one time you were supposed to come into our TV studio for a, we were going to tape something with you. And I was hammered and didn't show up for work. And, uh, you know, I kind of knew you knew. And so it, it started to affect things more I and more. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. I just I like, yeah. yeah. So you were supposed to show up, and I wasn't at work. And, uh, um, you know, and soon, Susan was aware of it. But, you know, you make a determination to, to go, mm-hmm. you know, to be sober. And ha- having done it before, you know you have the tools to do it mm-hmm. on one hand. But you have to go find a new aid group, which is, you know, that's not fun. No, it's there's it's, some people that can walk in. It's like going to a new school almost in some yeah. ways. Except well, that, well, except that, I mean, honestly, recovery communities are supposed to be open and welcome in there. And I, I don't care whether what it is, AA or 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 smart recovery or anything. You're supposed to welcome the newcomer. I mean, that is part of the process. Well, there's no question, yes, but yeah. it. But it always feels awkward. In that but way. here's the advantage I had: I was able to go to um, ten or fifteen meetings. Just to kind of get a sense to uh-huh. where I feel at home. And my home group, Solano Group, it's a noon meeting called uh-huh. Fresh Air. And Alano Club. Been there. <laughs> yeah. Alano Club is not, it's a scary spot. You know, it's not like, my home group in Vegas was a very white shoe, and that's a horrible term, but well healed. Yeah, yeah. And the fun part about that group was on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, we'd get big time stars who were in performing on the strip who would come to that group uh-huh. because it was a pretty finance, you know, they felt comfortable, you know, you, you're more comfortable with people like yourself. Right. It, it, and they know that all the pretension is generally not going to be there under those circumstances. Hopefully some but, of it will be tempered. But in this case, God damn, it was great because these entertainers could share famous entertainers. They're funny. They're, you knew you were going to a comedy club where no booze was served. <laughs> right. And this meeting was at seven in the morning. And that's a, if you're into going to daily meetings, seven in the morning is the way to go because mm-hmm. you literally get up, you get started. Eight o'clock, you feel like you've got, yeah, you've got a good way to go in uh-huh. the day, and uh, so that was a fun group. And but you know when you're when I started driving up to Salt Lake every week, I got away from it. So losing my um, my comfort in Vegas probably hurt my recovery, but mm. you know. You know Stuff happens. That's, sure. that's how recovery goes. Well, and, you know, you brought up a point, I think, that's important in a number of ways. And this idea of relapse or lapse or, you know, going back out. Um, and for a long time, and there's this idea that um, that, I mean, it was sort of held that 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 was actually something was wrong, that there was a problem. And yes, maybe it identifies some things that, that need to be worked on or adjustments that need to be made. Um, but I, it's, I think the black and white thinking around this has really changed in the past five to 10 years um, in, in a number of different kinds of recovery communities where people don't look at this as black and white as much anymore. That I mean, yes, sobriety for the most part is supposed to be about abstinence, but the road of sobriety or recovery is all over the place. And to expect it to look a certain way based upon someone else's experience 
is probably not really sober or rational thinking in the first place because <laughs> <laughs> well i it's funny you should say that. so i had a woman this morning or at our noon meeting who's a friend of mine talked about resetting her recovery date because of gambling <laughs> and i after she shared i had to share and say if that were the case I my recovery date was forty five minutes ago because I just placed a bet on tonight. But you know, and there are some people who swear and God, if it works for them, there's some drinkers who feel that as long as they don't drink, they can smoke pot. Uh-huh. And the vast majority in people, like ninety nine point nine percent of people in AA, say that's not the case. That's true. But I circle back to whatever gets you through the day because pot right. is not, in my opinion. Uh, it's not a trigger drug. It's not, you know, you, now you don't necessarily get the most out of your day, but again, you know, I'm not judgmental well, on that front. Yeah. Getting up first thing in the morning and, you know, hitting the bong is probably not the best way to start the day. No, but no, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And, and but yes. if, if, and that's why, you know, God, if the LDS church here, we almost had a bill through, not this oh, session, no. oh. the last session uh-huh. on medical marijuana before uh-huh. the LDS church, I think it got through the Senate first. It and did. The, yeah. And all of a sudden the LDS church was, holy shit, we almost missed on one. <laughs> now Herbert wouldn't have signed it, yeah. you know, because he's a puppet of the church. But right. that being said, you know, I don't see pot as being a major deal. Um, I'm about to have some pretty major surgery and... My lovely uh, co-host of my morning TV show mm-hmm. goes, I can get you some CBD oil. And I was all all for it. And she goes, it's 130 bucks." And I go, that ain't happening. <laughs> 130 bucks. I'm going to buy a lot of Oxy. <laughs> Which is legal, right? <laughs> totally. And I am not going to be one of those people who worries about my addiction uh-huh. to have pain. No. So let me rephrase that. So in a really painful... I learned this the hard way. You probably... you I don't know if you know that or not, but... No, but I'm having a shoulder replacement, uh-huh. and I am going to stay ahead of the pain. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'm. It, sound, it might sound to some people who've had a lot of addiction issues, like me, uh-huh. it might sound naive, but I'm not going to torture myself. Right. right. I, I feel strongly that I can stop taking the pills yeah. once the pain goes away. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I have people close who are aware and... Sure. You're going to keep an eye on it. Yeah. But. Well, and I went through this, and I thought the first time I had, um, I, th- I can't remember if you're still living here then or not. Maybe not. First time I had hernia surgery, I um, said, I'm going to bite the bullet. You know, no pain meds for me. And I worked at some, um, you know, guided imagery with a, my doctor and the nurse, and they were doing um, some different types of meditation and visualizations. And it was really pretty cool. And they said, yeah, if you're going to do it without it, you know, an NLP, you know, some going to do some neuro-linguistic programming for you to help you. And that that all worked fine until the local wore off. <laughs> and I was home alone, and it's like, I, I was like, going, I, I, I couldn't even get, I could hardly walk or move to get from the couch, which I was lying on, to the bathroom. And I remember getting halfway to it, and I just put my teeth into the the uh, leg of a wooden chair and just stayed there so for you about did not, an hour. You did not get ahead of the pain. No, no, no. The pain, the pain won. I'm just saying the pain won, and um, I stayed there for a few hours until. But actually, here's the thing, and and what happens if you let that pain get ahead of you? You never catch up. I, I didn't. I, I, I spent three days or two and a half days 
basically in that. I mean, I took ibuprofen after, you know, actually, Kristen came home and gave me some ibuprofen. And, and um, Did you have any painkillers at the house? No. No, I didn't. I didn't have them on purpose, and I didn't end up using them. But the next time I had surgery, which was for my, my brain, <laughs> you know, when they removed it, um, uh, I, I took I took painkillers, and I'm really But glad. fortunately, when they removed enough of your brain, <laughs> they automatically registered you for the Republican Party. <laughs> so, it, you know, and that was tough to get through. I, I have a feeling that you... You have some confirmation bias. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't think all Republicans are horrible. Uh, There's got to be two or three. Good, good. But keeping an open mind. But the thing is, is that there are a lot of a lot of people in the addiction community who just automatically will not. And God bless if it works for them. I'm not going to be one of them. I'm going to have. Stay ahead of the pain as much because shoulder replacement is supposed to be one of the more painful operations. And frankly, it scares me. Yeah. Um, one of the issues is my girlfriend, where I'm going to be staying for the next month. She's very cognizant of my uh-huh. addiction, but um, you know, I'm. She's going to keep an eye on it. Sure. But she has all the alcohol in the world in the house, <laughs> and uh, you know, I haven't mentioned to her that I'm a little concerned about that. But I'll. <laughs> what the alcohol? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you're, you know, if you're, and. So this surgery, you can't sleep in a bed for a month. So you're in a, a lounge chair, a Barca lounger. You're in a Barca lounger. Yeah. yeah. We just rented one for the surgery. And what I'm going to try to do is get back to work as soon as possible. You know, and uh, so we're directing some video now and we have the TV station, some other stuff. But I, I want to get, I don't want to just be sitting on that Barca lounger Bar- walking, watching TV all day. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, four or five days if you haven't showered, are going to be trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not, no one's going to want to work with me, but I want to go down to the office to do it. But that, that pain and surgery is, is something that um, if you have an addiction, it's something always to be conscious of. It is. Of you course. know, you talk to your doctors, but on the other hand, I don't want to talk to my doctor because I want him to prescribe enough. Uh, right. And it's not like I'm alone and I'm going to OD on it. Yeah. You know, I have a caregiver. Okay. And so I'm. you're scared going into any procedure that's going to cause you a lot of pain. Sure. But um, the world uh, needs another 60-year-old hockey player. It cannot be with <laughs> So... You have a lifetime correspondent. <laughs> yeah, so when I announced that I'd be... So I'm not going to be able to play hockey for a year. And uh, what? I, my opponents were all very concerned. My teammates, not so much. They've been... <laughs> so <laughs> this is uh, the text that I'm getting from my teammates tonight. They're a very supportive group. And uh, it's fun to have a comforting group that cares about you. One of them was, uh, let's see. Okay, I'm a smart ass, but. Uh, well, yes, that goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> Wait, oh, oh, shit, just since this started, there's seven more texts. So. Okay, well, what are they saying, Trip? <laughs> they're say, pretty much, um, they're talking about doddering old man. So we we are having a draft for a hockey tournament, which I'm not going to be able to play in because it's going to be during the during my surgery Uh and so they're having an organizational party uh oh shit this is for a 
TV game we're doing. Never mind. Well, it, they're funny texts. So, uh, oh, shit. Well, this would have been funny if I got... Okay. So I, I mentioned I wouldn't be able to go to this organizational meeting tonight uh-huh. to put it together because I'm dating one of my teammates girlfriends that's how you put it (laughs) and she goes she'll be at the grizz game tell the retirement home the alzheimer bus the retirement homes alzheimer bus to drop you off if he remembers when amber when the amber alert meaning me goes out on a goofy old fella in west valley direct it to the olympic oval or the strip club so (laughs) That in context, that wasn't very funny, but in my context, so in the context of you, it's hilarious. Actually, so circling back, um, this has been a challenge for me, addiction for a long time, mm-hmm. and right now I feel good about it. But um, I think the key is to like pain, stay ahead of it. Uh-huh. Try to get to a couple meetings a week uh-huh. because when you're at a you you focus on it for an hour. And to have good friends who are in recovery. Right. And those things. So, for instance, after my surgery, I've got people are going to pick me up and take me to my home meeting. Good. And it'll be the first time that I will have ever shared while on <laughs> narcotics, but probably won't go long. Keep them wanting, but... Uh, yeah, right. So, no, no. I. If you ever watch our TV show, I, I will not do a segment more than four minutes on yeah, TV. You were saying that. Yeah, yeah it... You know, and that podcast podcasts are uh, are a luxury it's to true. be able to go long. It's true, it's but true. it's still self indulgent. Okay, okay. Yes, it is self indulgent, but that it, it and that can that can be unhealthy at times. There's no 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 doubt. Um, I want to kind of circle through this though a little bit because the idea of um, that you've talked about a lot uh, and and preparing for the surgery and the con- and the concerns that you have um, y- you you talk about your friends and you talk about the the fellowship but what I really hear you talking about um, is community this sense of the you know the the quality of your friendships and your support systems around you the community around you that you've built and you've invested time and energy that shows up that shows up and you show up for them and and now you know you, you get you're going through a situation and then people show up for you because you take the time and the energy to put value into that community and then that that's what grows and that's to me what the most important thing and i think one of the things that when we are out there using when we are out there not taking care of ourselves and often isolating we're creating just the opposite in our lives where our community's beginning to fragment except for the people that we use with it during those times and that's not always the healthiest group to be around when it comes to being vulnerable and honest and open and, and uh, you know, willing to show up for people in those tough times like that. Or even times, not that this is necessarily a tough time, but surgery, especially shoulder surgery, can be uh, can be challenging, so especially the healing process. So you've got a good community that's supporting well, you. And your, your buddies at the bar are great friends, <laughs> except... You know, when you're not at the bar and it, it it is kind of one of those situations where, you know, and and when you go into there is so much fun being with friends while you're drinking or getting high. I mean, those are really, you know, I look back on my life and uh, 
the times you think about are, are those parties. It just our, you know, I look back at our house and holiday here was so much fun, and most of it were hammered. <laughs> and the times you, you remember, you don't remember the, getting up and going to work in the morning. You remember the parties and right. the fun at night, and uh, we only had one Selective rule. memory and some yeah. euphoric recall. Yeah. <laughs> we had only one rule, that the bishop's daughter was not allowed in the hot tub. <laughs> that was our only rule. But it was funny at Susan's house. Uh-huh. The, for some reason, she decided to move to Sugar House, which was a disaster. Uh-huh. But after she had left to move to her ill-fated trip to Hawaii, uh-huh. the lease was very expensive. And a couple of her friends were living there. And one morning, I had to do something I've never done before. And uh-huh. I'm embarrassed to say, uh-huh. went out to the hot tub just as it was getting light. Uh-huh. And there were three or four girls in there with two of the roommates and I told the girls to put their clothes on. <laughs> Good for you. I it, it oh, wasn't I was you depressed. You were adulting. <laughs> yeah, it, it really was sad, but Salt Lake so many fun times, but the ones you remember are the partying. Right. You don't remember the the serious and and mm-hmm. but on the other hand um, you do irresponsible things. You do things that aren't good for yourself or other people. Uh-huh. And it feels much better to be doing the right thing. However, when, depending on what your keys are, what gets you into a spot where you want to drink or drug. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's tough. There are times when it's, in my case, if you're having a bad day, have some drinks, pass out. And I always wake up in a good mood the next day. Always. Huh. And so getting past that day without drugs or, or drink, you know, I know if I can get asleep, then I'm going to be fine. Yeah. And maybe I'm lucky in that regard. Yeah. So, well, a good night, the importance of sleep. I was one of those for a long time that thought I could get by consistently four or five hours a night, you know, thinking that, you know, I was superhuman and all that kind of stuff. And I was just stupid. And I admit that today that, you know, I, I, this idea of, you know, being, in fact, it's even, it's even arrogant. It's all the aspects of addiction that are unhealthy to to think that um, I could go for a long period of time. And on minimal sleep, and it's partly what led to some of my neurological problems in the first place. Um, you know that that I ended up having that I needed to have the surgery for was not taking care of myself. So I mean, yes, there there are a number of things that came together that created that, but my lack of sleep did, did not help in any way. It expedited the problems, especially the vascular disease and things like that associated with it. The body can't heal; it, it can't take care of itself. Yeah, sleep so. is is so hugely important. And I was thinking about this earlier today. I had a buddy of mine when I was on the road selling T-shirts. You know, we travel around with these bands, and he used to quit Coke about once a week. But he'd throw it out the window in the bus, and we we finally got to the point where everyone tried to get the seat behind him with a bag. You know, to try to get a fish it. net. Yeah, holy shit. And, and George used to quit all the time, and we'd finally say, George... If you're going to quit, just sell it to us at a discount. <laughs> Take Don't the money it. and run. Yeah, oh, my God. But when it comes to the the sleep thing, you know, most drunks pass out. It's and true. that's not good quality. Well, and, and drunk sleep is not good sleep. There's an alcohol and, and, and healthy sleep. They don't go together. Mm-mm. No. And, but the thing is, is that once you get past that, you know, you go through that pink cloud, uh-huh. and which... Pretty much everyone who goes into recovery does. But then the hard part is when you get back to real life. Yeah, that's true. 
That's and true. you know, how many would you guess? How many people are in a, suffering from addiction in Salt Lake? We've got about two million people in the metropolitan now because we have LDS people here. Maybe. 55, 60%, that cuts our population down quite a bit. It doesn't, actually, because we still have some of the highest um, rates. You know, we're always within the top 5% of opiate and uh, benzodiazepine abuse um, in the country. So What is benzo? Those are, um, that's Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, um you know that that whole series of drugs it's it's the pill it's alcohol in pill form and um it's used actually uh as a, to detox off of alcohol they use librium which is a very short acting benzo 4 to 6 hours on average um but that keeps you know going into the dt's and the shakes and having seizures um if, if you know someone's been drinking enough that if they stop just cold turkey so that that they don't get sick or have any life-threatening problems associated with the detox. But benzodiazepines are highly abused here. So are opiates. Um, for a, a long period of time, um, that was the leading cause of death um, for young adults here in Utah um, was opiate uh, overdose. The, even, I mean, a sadder part of that right now is actually the number one cause of death of adolescents um, is suicide. In, in Utah. We, we, and how, uh, of those suicides, the high school kids, how much is addiction a part of that? We, they don't have those numbers yet. Um, and I, I don't know. But it, the, the point I want to get kind of full back or come back around to is you asked, are we different here because of the influence um, of a, a predominant spiritual faith, um, religious um, theology here, but no, we're not. We're we, the. In fact, be, we deal with prescription drug abuse at a higher rate than many other um, uh, areas of the country do, because of the the uh, consumption of prescription drugs is so high. Now, a lot of those people, regardless of their their uh, religious upbringing, um, um, the the end up on heroin anyway. So we will find it. I mean, in the treatment center I work at, um, at least, I mean, to, I mean, I think this is probably about true. So that's why I'm saying it's all pretty much the same trip is half the people in there at any time could be LDS. So, um, I mean, sometimes the kids aren't, but the family members that are coming in are, and sometimes it's even higher. So I, I don't, I think that when we talk about, um, substance abuse rates or addiction rates among the population here, we're the same as everywhere. It, it the, the, the religious faith doesn't make doesn't lower it at all. In fact, yeah. in some cases, we know actually increases it because the more dogma um, or um, strictness there is in um, uh, the, the, these belief systems within the, the, a theology, it actually often fosters this need to, um, of or the, the the need to escape from the shame of not living up to certain values or expectations, and especially in young people, and they turn to drugs and alcohol what as a I way don't to self medicate. How that. these physicians? I've never had a physician that, in any way, shape, or form, has given me as enough pain medication as I wanted. <laughs> when I had cancer, prostate surgery, uh -huh. they gave me 14 pain pills. <laughs> what the shit? I mean, that wasn't even close to what I needed. Fortunately, I had good friends, but... Oh. It, it, you know, they, they, who is... 
And I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but who is lucky enough to see a physician who prescribes enough medication? Yeah. Well, it's different. It's different today. I had a, I had a friend on, a, a colleague on um, last month that uh, he was he did pain management for years, and he said it is different today than it was you know, 15, 20 years ago, because when he was dealing with his, he was in a plane accident and he had serious lower back issues and, you know, some vertebrae fused and they were writing him, you know, two, 300 pills at a time, you know, for 30 days. And, and so, yes, they, the times have changed and, and still, there's still doctors out there that are, when it comes to pain management, so not recovery, it's a little bit different. So, but there are definitely with pain management, there's still doctors out there writing exorbitant you know, prescriptions for these well, things. Well, and here's the situation is that pain, as you said, Paul, we're changing and changing. But you know what? There are a lot of people that are in serious pain. And until we can come up with other ways to treat them, uh-huh. we're going to continue to have this. That's, that's true. And why? I mean, I, given a choice between excruciating pain and being high all the time mm-hmm. i would even though i'm addicted i would take being i don't want to be in pain no no but the, but the but these narcotics the opiates are, have been proven that they they're not good for long-term pain management there are and and so and and part of the problem is because they change the brain and then the brain gets the baseline of the pain gets skewed and quite often um because you know the 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 way pain is registered in, in our bodies is through our brains. And so it's not like you take the opiates and they're going and they're treating the pain on the leg or, you know, or, you know, or, or your prostate or whatever, um, that where they're treating the pain is in the brain. It's tricking, you know, tricking us to think that things well, are what hurting. is the choice if you have a severe pain? I mean, what? That, well, there, there, are, there are things that, that are being looked at. But I have to be honest with you, probably one of the things that's going to come out through all this over time is that, you know, people are going to be using cannabis because it's the recovery rate on it's quicker um the long term problems associated with addiction are lower yes you can you can get addicted to marijuana but in in long term it's something easier to walk away from than the painkillers and it doesn't have the same long term effects as far as neurological damage so well, exactly and you know as a friend of mine who smokes weed every day he goes i'm not addicted i just have to have it every day <laughs> yeah. but you know it Whatever gets you through the day, and when a religion comes out with, and that's the uh, guiding principle. But there, we all have friends who just function on a level that is, you know, Patrick, your yeah. son. Yeah, I mean, he, life doesn't. You know, he appears to be the Teflon son, <laughs> where you know he just operates on a highlight. He runs marathons, has great wife, great family. But you know, you look at that, and you go. We're so envious of people who operate on that level. Uh-huh. But a lot of us don't. No, we don't. And, you know, sometimes I think the media, which I am a begrudging member, we put images out there of how you should live and how, you know, advertising in particular. And we give a false narrative of how people work. That's but, right. Yeah, those social constructs get woven into the, the fabric of what is expected and how things are supposed to be. And that, that indoctrination into that is unhealthy. I mean, all the research shows, you know, I remember that. This, uh, we, uh, as someone who writes, directs, and casts commercial, I very rarely put 50-year-olds who are flatulent in any spots. <laughs> so, I mean, but, but you'll get a kick out of this. We had the greatest TV spot I ever wrote. Uh-huh. It was super effective, and it didn't run. 
So what happened is a police department in Vegas uh-huh. had gotten a raise out of the city council. And then the city council, about six months before the raise became effective, took that money and put it into a parks budget. So the city count, or the police department came to me and said, can you help? And I go, I can. So I shot and did two commercials, one of which I was in. But the one that worked the best, we hired a guy who dressed up like a drug dealer. Uh-huh. Shot him in a city park, and he goes, I want to thank the city council so much. Because of your forethought, we're going to have a bunch of new park space where I can sell drugs in. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much. And now, with less money for cops, I'm never going to get caught. Uh And the second spot was at my house. I had my buddy dress up as a cop. Uh, you say these never ran, but so we got to come back and remember why. Explain why. Cause so I, what not ha- that I can't tell already. Okay, but so Jim was in a cop uniform, and we have the alarm going off uh-huh. in the house. Uh-huh. And then I'm walking by with my dog, and he goes, we don't have enough money for backup. Can you back me up? And I pick up the dog, and we run into the house. And so those two spots, we released them to all the TV stations. Oh, my God. And it was funny because I was doing... Two games a week on TV, uh-huh. UNLV, you know, uh-huh. I'd get recognized a little bit. These commercials ran on all the news stations, the 6, the 7, oh, they and did the 11, just on the news station. Because oh, okay. we had we had bought purchased airtime to uh-huh. start running them okay. two days later. The city council got so much flack, they turned it around that night, and the police department called and said, you don't even have to run the spots. And we had paid for the spots already, but we didn't. you don't want to bury it. Sure, right. But that was a case where I did hire a drug dealer, or the guy looked like one. But it, it worked. I play well. one on TV. Yeah. I <laughs> but I got more crap for that spot from people who saw it on the news because, you know, even though TV is a dying, people still watch a lot of news, local news. But now anyone under 40 doesn't watch TV. <laughs> TV? What's that? Exactly. And it, it's frustrating to be in the business. But. So we're getting back to that image that we cast. You always cast beautiful people. If you're selling any type of spirits, they're always uh-huh. having a great time. You know, they're always totally healthy. It doesn't. There's never been a beer or liquor spot that showed the effects of beer or liquor <laughs> ever. Well, <laughs> that would be a little counter. The darker ones, yeah, except the ones that say, you know, get off this shit before it fucking kills you, right? <laughs> well, and, you know, we, we only have... And those are the dark commercials, and people watch that and they go, ugh, you know. You know. Dude, but here's an interesting point. We were not allowed to have TV, have liquor spots on TV for years and years and years. They cut it off probably about 30 years ago. Now, you could have beer, uh-huh. you could have wine right. on TV. But once... Liquor companies started to go back on TV, and they started with cable. Yeah, it was cable. Yeah. When that happened, the consumption of spirits, hard liquor, uh-huh. went up demonstrably. It's uh-huh. a case in point that I would use in sale pitches uh-huh. for TV, because TV still, it's not, it's still number one. Yeah. In this, in Salt Lake, they spend 125 million a year on local TV That's commercials. Wild. That's wild. But once spirits went back on TV, it cut down beer sales uh-huh. and wine. Wow. And as an addict, you always say, well, if I don't drink liquor, I'm fine. Uh-huh. And I've done that, you know. You know, for a long time, you couldn't advertise beer in locally. On Oh, I can on, imagine yeah. in this market. But yeah. now it changed. It, it changed within the last five years or so. What because, do you think because, of the point oh five? Well, I mean, I, I understand the reason for it, but I, I don't think it's 
I don't know. I don't know, you know, if it actually makes that much difference. I understand the numbers don't change as far as it stopping accidents or not or so, affecting. But I hear it affects our tourist trade and it's going to affect the. It's, the, you know. it, it's going to be a bad one. But there are uh, two guys who bought the bar next door to our old TV station uh-huh. in South Salt Lake. And it used to be known Carol's Cove. It was the biggest shithole bar there was. Uh-huh. And they turned it around. And But I said to the guy, I go, How's point oh five going to affect you? And he goes, "I haven't had a guy leave here in less than point one five ever." <laughs> <laughs> and what they say is that between point five and oh eight, those are not the problems that we're looking at. We're yeah. looking at the guys one point, yeah, no, or, or above yeah. that caused the, you know, and and uh, well, that, that are are impaired. Yeah, I mean, yeah. truthfully impaired. Yeah, and uh, I remember uh, one at. When I lived here in the 80s, I did drink and drive a uh-huh. lot. And the laws back then were kind of counterintuitive because you belonged to a club. Right. Green Parrot was my spot. Right. And one day I was driving home, or one night, and um, just realized I couldn't drive, pulled over, took the keys out of my ignition, reclined the car. <laughs> Next morning I woke up and go, well, that was a smart decision. Look over, and I was right in front of the South Salt Lake Police <laughs> Department. I mean... The chief was become a friend. I mean, his, his office was 40 feet away, and he could have looked down and seen me. But, you know, the drinking and dry, it, that's the thing about addiction. If you have an addiction problem, right? any day you could wake up, you could kill someone by that evening. That's true. That is any true. day. And in many cases, you could not be at fault. If you've had a couple beers and you're below the .08, uh-huh. but you're driving through a neighborhood, a kid's car, I mean... The circumstances, and you and I were both involved in a situation like that back in 1982. One of our employees who worked in the warehouse. Oh, you're right. You're right. I remember this story. Yeah. Yeah. He ran a light at 39th and 7th and killed two or three people. Yeah, just up from where the the water plant was. And his name was Jeff or Jim. He had a beard. Yeah, it was was, was Jeff or Jim. I think Jim. Yeah. Yeah, and this guy was seemingly a great guy. I mean, he was a great guy, but he had an alcohol issue and killed two or three people. And it ruined his life. In my home group in Vegas, we had a woman who spent three years in jail. So that's kind of the one, you can hurt yourself, you can hurt your family, your loved ones. But if you, and that's the thing I pray for, never to ever get behind a wheel of a vehicle again. Uh While I'm impaired. Yeah, that's a wake-up call. There's no doubt. That that had a dramatic effect on me. And I remember when the police came and having and interviewed us um, and went, th- went through that whole process. And, yeah, he, he killed a young couple that were coming like a, a prom night or something ridiculous, you know, uh, yeah, in his truck. Yeah, and I remember just, the yeah. officers say there were no break, signs of breaking. Uh-huh. Yeah. None whatsoever. Uh-huh. Um. You know, and you do everything right as a parent, and your kids get wiped off the face of the earth by a drunk driver. I mean, um, that's, you know, it's that's as horrible as it gets. And as long as you don't have that, you have a reasonably good chance of not waking up in jail and never getting out. Yeah. And judges and juries are getting much more um, harsher. Yeah. You know, and... and all of us could have had it happen so many times. It's, there's probably truth to that. And anyone who's listening to this podcast is in that situation. Yeah. And so that's the one that 
ultimately is super scary. And in my years of drinking in Vegas, I was very, very cognizant of that. I, but when I lived here, I was not. Isn't that interesting? And the difference. Yeah, and what a horrible, horrible situation. Huh. I mean, I don't know how you live with yourself after you've killed some innocent people. It, it's definitely not, well. I've actually, I've I've counseled. I've, I've worked with clients that have, that has happened, and it's it's hard. It's because the part of the problem is a lot of people. The reason why they use drugs in the first place is the the sense of of guilt or shame that they have about other things in their lives or some level of. I mean, you understand this level of misery that that kind of follows them around. We've there's talks of you know this living living within a shadow type thing. It feels like. But here, I can solve this. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. You make every motor vehicle have a breath analyzer. breathalyzer on it. Yeah. Yeah, and you literally, if you're over point oh eight, you do not get to drive a car. And you, you know, there are ways around it. You know, there, but you, you make it bulletproof, and that's just in every car in North America. Yeah. How many lives would we save? Well, we've got tens of thousands, probably. Well, now, the problem is we've killed the tourist industry. <laughs> but just, Paul, no, you... But then, but then you, I mean, if, there, there's, if there's a bright side to this, if we want to call it a bright side, it's, it's helped other industries. I mean, Uber and Lyft are, you know, exploding in this market and have been for a while now. And I only see that that increases. That, oh, it, the, Uber and Lyft have changed things demonstrably. And those guys should be... The guy who started Uber was supposed to be a horrible guy, but be that as it may, it's it's a great. And in L.A., it's funny because people, stupid people have great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so, including the present company, of course. So, I, I had a buddy of mine, Greg Matta, down in Vegas, who was the stupidest genius ever. And this guy came up with brilliant ideas, but he would come. We were roommates, and he was a professional inventor. But smoked so much weed, and he would come, he'd bang on my door at night and goes, I've got the greatest idea in the world. I go, Greg, come on, why'd you wake me up, you asshole? And then I'd be yelling at him for a while, and he forgot the idea. <laughs> so, I was going to say, this, the, the, this sounds so counterintuitive. Oh, he, <laughs> Inventing, you know, he was an a professional he, inventor who smokes He way probably too had 4,000 good ideas, two went to market <laughs> because he was such a dumb shit. But he was a professional jet ski racer. Oh. And he would do. The jet ski community gets together in Lake Havasu uh -huh. every year for the Worlds, and it's a big deal. It's actually a lot of fun. So he organized a group of jet skiers to do a race up in outside in a place called Pahrump. And one of the casinos had a pond. And he was so pissed because they got kicked out of there after two years. And I go, Greg, your guys never went in the casino. All they did was sit outside on the pond and smoke weed for two days. Right, right. The casino made no money from them. Right. What, you know. But... And circling back to what we said about weed, no one is ever going to come up with a cure for cancer to smoke weed. It does not increase your IQ. No, no. But if but nobody's died from it so far. Is what I mean. I understand somebody somebody had a, a like an allergic reaction or something. But. but yeah, I mean it is you know between alcohol and cocaine and opiates and and all this other stuff uh -huh. that have killed countless millions of people over uh -huh. the years. Right. 
um, you know, alcohol being the the so, biggest. But in Europe, they've solved the drunk driving problem for whatever reason. Culturally, uh-huh. people don't drink and drive. It's true, and that, actually, there are other places too. I mean, you don't have some of these problems in um, some some of the Pacific uh, Rim countries as well. They and, don't have these issues. No, and in L.A., so we were down in L.A., and now at every bar and restaurant. Parking lots are empty, but everyone in L.A. takes Lyft or Uber. It's, it's, and so you get out of a restaurant, and you've got 27 black cameras, <laughs> and everyone's looking for light. You know, they're going to have to come up with different color lights to right. signify you're one. But as a society, I mean, that, curing drunk driving, if we could ever accomplish that, and we could. I mean, it's a technological. You, If we could just have a, a society say, we are not going to allow people to drink and drive, <laughs> and we're going to put this equipment on every car. Yeah. It, it's not impossible. In fact, there are other ways to detect alcohol through skin and there are other different ways, too. So I agree. I have agree. you ever, uh, what's the dumbest idea you've come up with to beat a breathalyzer, you know, on the street? You've heard stories about sucking pennies. or There are all these stories, kind of wives' tales, uh-huh. of how you beat it. <laughs> Is there anyone that works? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Have you ever been through a uh, DUI checkpoint? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. How'd you do? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't intoxicated. Did fine. But yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so I went through one. I was nervous, even though I, I oh, wasn't. I wasn't. You know. <laughs> well, it's funny because I got. I met a young lady in Vegas, and she invited me out on the Budweiser boat, which is the greatest invitation you can get. It's about a sixty-foot powerboat, uh-huh. and owned by the Budweiser distributor there. Uh-huh. And we had a great time, and she drove. And on the way back, and. I, I was having a good time. I was drinking and carousing, and, and but I didn't have to drive. Uh-huh. And on the way back, there's a DUI checkpoint, uh-huh. just as you go from Lake Mead Recreation Area into Henderson. Yeah. And she goes, okay, switch places. <laughs> I go, that's not happening. <laughs> the romance ended there, but... <laughs> ah, well, that's not romance, just if, by the way. <laughs> if, if I was going to be dumb enough to switch seats after drinking all day, but on Lake Mead... I was always very conscious if I ran the boat. And what happens is they've got a bunch of Mormon park rangers. They're not rangers. They're fish and wildlife for the state of Nevada. But they have control over the drinking and driving. The Lake Mead National people don't do that. And Mm -hmm. uh, so they're very, they catch a lot of people. And a lot of people go to jail for that. Yeah. So they're very conscious of it. Well, you get a DUI for driving the boat. Oh, it it is just as serious. And one night... There was a group on a uh, pretty high-performance boat, and six people died running in. By the Hoover Dam, they've got straight rocks there. Yeah, You know, yeah. straight. They drove right into it and Uh-oh. killed Oh, okay. And so that is very, you know, because, but anytime, alcohol on the wheel is just a bad, They just don't go together, no. Alcohol, in fact... There's not really a lot of things alcohol goes well with. I mean, you know, for a wedding to- toast. A wedding toast. I was going to say toasts. You know, <laughs> no, I'm being facetious there because how many bad ones? <laughs> oh my god! Well, no, but alcohol. Is- wedding, wedding, wedding. By the way, marriage rates have declined steadily over the past twenty years. Yeah, and at, so Patrick's wedding was amazing. It was, and yeah. I was not drinking that night, and so this is a funny story. Are the um, the priest or the what would you call Matthew? There, he was the the shaman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever. Matthew was this wonderful guy who was the it, he 
did the vows. Yeah. So minister. Yeah. And he this, was a minister. Sure. This yeah. guy was incredibly handsome and charming and just the women loved him. So at one point, uh, we're, we're over, I'm talking to him, and a woman's bringing uh, shrimp by. <laughs> and she, I, and Matthew's back was to her. Uh-huh. And she offers me a shrimp, and I say thank you. And then Matthew turns around and looks at her. And at this point, her <laughs> literally, she just stopped like she'd seen an angel. <laughs> and, you know, her panties hit the floor. And, I mean, she just literally stopped, and he said something nice to her. Then later, How the, you doing? <laughs> yeah. Later in the evening, Matthew's father, your father-in-law, was talking to the same girl, and she had the same reaction to Nick. And... Uh, and it, it just, I, it, it was just that like nickel charm is what you're talking shit. about. I mean, you, your father-in-law is talking to her, and she is just thrilled. And and your mother-in-law is sitting right there, but the nickel's charm worked. I mean, she was just sucked right in. Yeah, I and, love that. And it was funny, uh, but this was a party where I really wanted to be drinking, <laughs> but I wasn't. And it was such a wonderful wedding. And it really was. Yeah. And so. Patrick is a photographer, and he had a bunch of his photographer friends there. Uh-huh. But in watching the dance, you know, you at a certain point in life, you realize that the party's not for you anymore, and that was about 15 years. But they had all these beautiful people dancing, and there a were wonderful the- spring night in Salt Lake up at Market Street. All those, and it was just, all those New York East Coast types, you know. Holy, and, 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 you know, if I'd had a budget, I could have shot it literally... I would have just cast those people as yeah. the extras. You, had you, the principals come in and try to get your principal photography done in four hours. Yeah. But it, it was so much fun and all you could eat and drink. And, and so there are times when... In the photo booth. Yeah. Oh. But there are times when you want, when you go out to those those things. Um, by the way, how have I done in getting you off the topic? You've done really well. We're going to go back. Really okay, we got to circle back because I've got about ten minutes. Oh, cool. <laughs> I've got another show tonight. Uh, we will redo this. I'll invite you down to our studio today. Yeah, we'll do part two down there. Yeah. All right. We'll get, let's move. Let's move forward, though. Let's go to a couple things. So, and then we'll we'll see how close we can get. And then we'll we'll come back. We'll do this again soon. Um, what what brings you uh, What brings you the joy in life? Um, Where do humor. you find it? Humor, humor, humor. So, laughing is the best thing that that we have, and just. By far and away. And that, when it comes to addiction groups, I always do my share about humor. Uh uh, And I used to get crap from that from my sponsor. You're not being genuine. But if you can entertain and, you know, within the A, we're, you know, a fun lot. You know, use that 30s terminology. But humor is my favorite thing by Uh far and away. Well, and, and laughing at ourselves probably is the most important thing. That's, I mean, you know, the term bozo, right? Just being under the bozo on the bus is the, to me, the epitome of that is being able to make fun of ourselves, to realize our folly, to be able to embrace it and actually go, that's what brings us all kind of together because, hey, we all are just a bunch of fools trying to figure our way through this, right? Best way through. Best way through. Okay. Um, you know, that we just got a question. Paul has, it's like a uh, thing in, in back in uh, biblical times. He's got 4,700 questions. <laughs> and uh, we're, we on number, we're on number three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
how do you, what's your, how do you connect to your Zen zone? What's your Zen spot? Where in life, how do you sort of connect? Making people laugh so is my favorite thing. And so, um, you know, it gets back to humor, but that is the best feeling in the world. If you can say something, make people laugh and make, and entertain it. Uh-huh. So have you done stand up? I have. Okay. And I bargained with God and got out of it. But in, <laughs> good job. Yeah, no, that people who do stand up are insane. Yeah. And it's it's a situation and when you're lucky enough to have a make a a living doing entertaining uh-huh. you know, being on TV and radio, uh-huh. you don't know that you're ra- you only get it secondhand. You don't have a studio audience. Um but it's fun. But you know, just being around people, and luckily enough, so your wife works up at Alta. I'm a host up at Snowbird. When mm-hmm. you're around people and you can entertain and, yeah. and just make their day better, that's a fun feeling. What 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 about just being up on the mountain too? I mean, just you and you and the mountain. What about on those days where I, I love being up there? But my, I don't love skiing. <laughs> and so, though you're a mountain host, right? <laughs> naturally, I'm a mountain host, and, and I have to laugh because your father-in-law is the best skier ever in the history of Alta. And after he retired from teaching, he was doing what I was doing, and I'm the worst skier. <laughs> so, so you got something in common. <laughs> you're yeah. both hosting mountain hosts, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, being up there is pretty special. That, and it was funny when we were in. Uh, L.A. a couple months ago. Uh-huh. I'm out in Manhattan Beach, which is truly glorious. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm from a tourist perspective, I'm looking at one of the most beautiful spots on the planet. Right. But there are a lot of people in Manhattan Beach who, who trade positions with me to live in Salt Lake and be at Snowbird every whenever I want. True, of course. Yes. So we are so lucky here to have these canyons. We are. And what is frustrating is there are a lot of people in Utah who don't ever go there. And or in your case, I remember when I moved out here in 81, we went up to, you and I and some other friends went up to Guardsman's Pass. Uh-huh. And I remember we ran down to one of those old junkers down there. Yeah, yes, yeah. And this is back in the summer of 81. And I oh remember my. it wasn't you, but someone said, if you think this is beautiful, try southern Utah. <laughs> and I know you, and I have not been back except for work. Uh, in years and years and years. Uh-huh. So we were lucky enough, or I was lucky enough to host a TV show called Destination Utah uh-huh. that was on a network. So we had a budget. But yeah. we travel around and do really fun stuff right. in, in southern Utah, which is glorious. It is incredible. It, it, and there, That is a huge zen zone. That is such, a, that is such an incredible place. It, it is magical. But I'll it's tell you a magical. funny story. Um, and you know the principles. You remember Orion? I, I do remember Orion, yeah. Big O. And he owned a company called Ochre Distributors, which a Jude Rubidoux. Yeah, she 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 works up at Alta. Yeah. Still, yeah. Oh, really? Yes. So big O, <laughs> we would take a thirty-two foot reefer yeah. truck, refrigerator truck, down to Moab, and drive way back, and then have a wild party with kegs of beer and prime rib and. You know, because it was a refrigerator truck. You, I mean, <laughs> you bring anything in, right? Everything in. And people were repelling off on mushrooms. on cl- And <laughs> this is before. Wait, they were, were repelling off mushrooms or on mushrooms? <laughs> on mushrooms. Because <laughs> that would have been a sight in southern but Utah. It, w- it was funny because people would walk back in. And uh-huh. then, you know, 
four or five miles in, and and Orion had some great truck drivers. Uh-huh. I think Mark was his name. He could get that truck back there. Uh-huh. But it would be so much fun. And the desert, you know, and we were imbibing, so it wasn't as spiritual as your trips. But it was pretty darn special. And then lucky enough for a number of years to go to Lake Powell the week after Labor Day. Uh-huh. Yes. When the water is still warm, yes. but the air cools off, yes. the best temperature, yes. and uh, it and it was funny because I was just talking to someone about it. Western Airlines was our half the people Western I knew worked Airlines, for Western. Yeah, right. And in 1987, uh-huh. it was announced they merged with Delta. Uh-huh. While I was down at Lake Powell, and the funny part, this was pre cell phone, uh-huh. and none of the we'd go down with flight attendants and none of them uh-huh. would ever take a day of vacation. It frustrated me to no end. Uh-huh. So they'd get in the boat, drive into the marina uh-huh. and call in sick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they would do this at seven in the morning. So half the group would go in there and call in sick. And one morning, about third or fourth day of the vacation, they came back like it was party time uh-huh. because once Delta made the announcement they were going to merge with uh-huh. Western, it meant that Western was saved. Yeah. And now I still have so many friends who are Western alumni who remember <laughs> that day, yeah. and because and they have gone on to prosper. And, uh-huh. You know, airlines sure. they've had some rough times, but now you know a lot of them are now sixty and they still fly uh-huh. as uh, flight attendants and. It really is remarkable. There's very this, as an industry that you can stay in it that long, especially if you can stay healthy. You can do that. I know. I that's not surprising. Um, a, a percentage of the population I treat are work in the are, are uh, well the airline from, is- from the airline industry, and most of them you are. They've had a, a drink or two. Yeah, they've had a drink or two. Yeah. And it, you know, I don't know how you do it. I mean, that's a miserable job. I've commuted. When we had the station in Kona, I would fly over from Vegas, <laughs> go over to Kona, and and then come back in two weeks, and Kevin would commute over from L.A. And so one of us was always there. And, you know, flying six, seven hours. But one of the times, one that trip I told you about where I bought the booze every morning, I had to sober up from the gift shop. From the gift shop, and bought the gay, gay men's, the men of Hawaii. But I had to sober enough to drive back over to Hilo because that's when I returned tickets about an hour and a half. Uh-huh. And I was hammered, but I was fine to drive. You know, I cut off for twelve uh-huh. hours, and I got a call on the way that was so familiar. I go, God, hi, is this trip? I go, Yeah, this trip. He go, This is Alec Baldwin. And I understand that you're in the TV business, and I want to talk to you about my new show, 30 Rock. Oh, my gosh. And I go, are you shitting me? Who is this? And then he continues and tells me about the show. And what my brother, who worked for GE at the time, they were promoting the show, and there was an algorithm. You could type in people's names and what they do for a living. Uh And so he typed it. So it wasn't Alec, but I was so convinced. Uh And then finally, after about a minute. They had you. But I remember... Going into Hilo, getting on the plane, and I sat up in the bulkhead uh-huh. and was sick for six. I mean, I didn't throw up, but just was miserable for six and a half, seven hours. And they have the screen that shows where the plane is. Uh-huh. And I watched that plane for six and a half hours. And uh, afterwards, you know, I'd been sober for a while. Someone said, why didn't you drink to kind of tone down? And I go, it didn't occur to me. What? So, literally, I could have had a couple drinks on the flight and gotten home and uh, then sobered up. Right, right. But it didn't occur to me. Interesting. 
And that was as miserable. I mean, I remember. You remember this, though. It stands out. I oh, mean, very much. Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, I'm watching that flight, and literally, it doesn't go any faster when you watch. <laughs> It's, that, like, it's like that watching screen. a pot boil scenario, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the in the ice house. I mean, it was as miserable, and I was as sick, and just horrible, and I took a cab home. But when you make that decision that you're going to sober up, uh-huh. yeah. how many, I was thinking about today, and, and so the reason I bring this up, on Tuesday, one of our new members poured out all his booze, told everyone, come out and we'll have a ceremony, and uh-huh. poured out really good expensive booze uh-huh. out in back of the Alano Club. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, how cool is that to quit while you still have some? Right. Because I think the vast majority of us quit in the morning <laughs> after we wake up and then you look through the house yeah. for something left to you know, a sip. Right. You squeeze that last bo- yeah. wine out of a box. Right, exactly. By the way, the first time I had box wine was with you. Going down the Colorado River in 80... Oh, shit. Oh, my God, yeah. We we definitely... I, there's a couple of things I was going to... We, we need to do this again. We need... Because there's another one I wanted to talk about. It's Because I remember that hot tub incident at a house you were staying on at 9400 South. Oh, my God. Yeah, so don't... We're not going to go there now. <laughs> i got to tell that story. i got to tell... Okay, this is the greatest story ever. So no! Orion, no, 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 we got to tell. So Orion was... He was a friend of ours who ran this distribution company, lived at the house with Bob Ash and Rick Bryling, yep. and then I moved in out in Sandy. Yeah. And we had a big wood hot tub in the back. So part of the thing is Orion was not a Snowbird employee and the worst basketball player in the Western world. And so... <laughs> That is true, probably. Orion was horrible, and he could but never... he, he wanted to play. He, he had a, he, oh, he wished so hard. Big O did flat footed man. Oh, he was horrible, and so he started his own basketball team, and then he got me to play. And then one night, and it was it's funny. I remember the eighties, great seventies, not so much. It was the day that San Diego played Miami in the AFC playoffs, and it went to double overtime, considered one of the great games ever. We were down at the Green Parrot to go see the Jazz play, uh-huh. and we met a six-foot-nine-inch African-American who played, had a cup of coffee in the NBA for the Seattle Supersonics. And Jimmy, well, it was his first name, uh-huh. and O went up to him, and I said, you can't. O is a five-six dorky white guy. Uh-huh. But went up to him and said, do you want to play for our team? And there's some issues that I'm not going to go into as to why he was willing to play, but he did. And so all of a sudden, oh, it was called the Ochre Nationals, and we played out the old Sandy City Hall. Oh, God, I and remember this. we were in the Snowbird League, and we won the championship. So we had a party uh-huh. back at the house. And Jimmy is a 6'9 black guy. Now, all the girls that came were Snowbird employees. Uh-huh. They had not seen a white guy naked, ever. So we're trying to get him in the hot tub, and no luck whatsoever. Uh-huh. Jimmy goes out and gets in the hot tub. All of a sudden, there's a line. I could have charged a cover charge where all the snowbird cuties are lined up to get in the hot tub with Jimmy. And he continued to play with O for seven more years. So was that the story? That's one of them. That's one of them. And there's another one where you and I and a few other people were there, and and you were um, – and I was – Married to your sister, and we're, we're going we're gonna to come back to it at another time. I'm not going to incriminate myself tonight. Okay, let's let's okay. not do it. Okay. But a, a good time was had by all. That was a great, good, good place. I drive by it every day, and I go. Sometimes I go. I can't. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it was funny. Our landlord was dating Terry Wood, 
and our landlord was a knockout. Yeah. She since was dating one of my competitors. I know the, Terry. But anyway, he he was up in the helicopter one time, and they're flying over the hot tub, and I'm going. That was fun. That was that was a good time there. Yeah, yeah that was. I had some good times there too. Yeah. Okay, so we got to get going. Okay, okay, a couple of things. So, um, let's just hit the one on God and faith, and what what are your what, do you have any belief systems? Yeah, how do, you, how do you connect to God or spiritual spirituality? And I or? haven't as of late because I've vacillated on that subject. So that's that's a difficult one. <laughs> you know, um, at the end of most AA meetings, we say the Serenity Prayer, um, but I've vacillated. You know, some days I believe, some days I don't. Did you have any of the Catholic upbringing like your sister did? Yeah, it was very strong. Okay. And <laughs> so at times, yes; times, no. Okay. You know, okay. So that that's a tough one, and that's a tough one for a lot of people. Well, and, I mean, you know, I uh, I always make an assumption, trip that that you kind of like me also find your connection to spirituality and nature at times. But just because I've, I've been out in nature with you and you seem to have a similar response. But I don't know if that's accurate or not, if you feel that way connected to something bigger than yourself in yeah, those it's moments. It's hard to intellectualize religion yeah. or spirituality for that matter uh-huh. because no one's ever come back. Uh-huh. And, you know... It, if there's a God, why would he or she allow religions to kill each other over a different form of Christianity, much less forget the Muslim and Christian? But right. if there is a higher power, don't you think that he would, you know, you talk about free will and all this stuff, but uh-huh. don't you think that the millions of people have died over religion, uh-huh. fighting over religion, he wouldn't put up with that? That's one I've never gotten an answer for. Yeah. And, but they always say free will. And how, how, as a preacher, do you, looking back to 1982 when our employee killed a couple, how do you say anything that's going to make sense? Right. And so those are my challenges. Yeah. You know, it. But there are times when I go, you know, and I... So do you consider yourself more on the agnostic level? And I know that, that I listened to this um, podcast actually recently with with uh, Penn Teller, and, and he's kind of a... He, cause I don't know if he doesn't really... He uses the word atheist, but he seems to kind of vacillate just slightly. But he, he brought up a point about... Um, you know, what it means to believe in something. And he his arguments are, are immaculate for explaining why there is not really a God or some type of entity. And they're, and they're well done. And they're, and they're, they're, it's hard to argue with them because it, 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 it comes from a place of just pure analytical clarity. And, um, he's a smart guy. Yeah, he is a smart guy. Um, his, his, his conversation reminds me of, uh, that, that scene out of, this is a, this is a stretch. I, I can hear Apocalypse Now, you know, when, um, uh, when Marlon Brando's character, the Colonel, um, I can't remember yeah. his name, but he's talking about the the diamond crystal pure vision and intention that comes from sort of, sort of the horrific acts they were doing and doing it without any um, fear. I mean, not without any fear or, or question or consequence. Colonel Krause? Was, yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I thought about that, and I go, is that sociopathic? And I go, no, because this 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 man had empathy for what people were going through, but understood understood what he was doing. And I kind of thought about that from a perspective, and I go, this kind of makes, I guess, sense that you could have an experience 
of life where it really just does come down to some level of intention and clarity of thought and how we all connect to that. Well, I, I think that if you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. So you, the, you kind of believe in a, maybe a universal karma principle sure. of some kind. Cause but I've got fact. a quick story. Okay. <laughs> then we're so, going to go to the last question. <laughs> okay. So Penn is an asshole. He's my neighbor. And he, uh, one night, he was abusing some women singing. He, by the at, way, he, he admits that, too. Yes, yeah. yeah, he does. So he was, he was giving shit to some singers at Bally's. Uh-huh. Used to be known as the MGM. Uh, yeah. And my old boss, Al Bernstein, who was is the top boxing sportscaster in the world. And I, he mentored me, and I worked for him, and lucky enough to uh, some big fights for him. Uh-huh. But his wife was one of the singers that Penn was abusing. Oh. Now, Penn's a big boy. He's about 6'6". Six, six, yeah, he says a big boy. 260. And Al is pretty good size himself. But Al just took off, ran across, jumped up, and popped Penn right in the nose. And one punch knockout. Oh, my. At Bally's. And then the general manager come running over and goes, okay, who do I have to throw out? You know, and then he's doing the thing you do in Vegas where who's a bigger star? You're right. You're right. <laughs> the algorithm. Yeah, right. The algorithm. Of- and be- because Penn was giving crap to Al's wife, he uh-huh. threw Penn out. I see. And Penn never went back. I see. But, he, you know, you can analyze these things, and, and religion makes you feel good at times. Spirituality makes you feel good most of the time. Yeah. But right. it's hard, you yeah. know, and, and I think as you get older, you try to rationalize that but my feeling is if you do well Uh you know and there's an old expression in recovery if you want to feel good do good Uh which might be the most important thing and the other one that i love is do the next right thing do the next right thing yeah if you do that i think you're going to feel better yeah and answer the next question okay Okay. the last one then we'll do today and then we'll come back you know i warned paul when i walked in i said I've been doing interviews for a lot of years. I am the worst guest. Yeah, right. So, well, then you get to interview me next time. Let's do it. Let's just switch roles. Okay. We'll, we'll, do, the same, we'll do the same format. Do you switch roles? All right. So the last one is, um, and I told you I was going to ask you this about, about music. So um, your life's playlist, if you were to have a... Walking yeah. on Sunshine. <laughs> Do you remember from the 80s? Yeah, it's what's her name in the... Uh, Katrina and the Waves. Katrina and the Waves. Yeah, Walking on Sunshine and then Night Moves. Bob Seger. Bob Seger. Who, of course, Bob Seger, yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah. I my, this is a funny story. My, By the way, you know, I... Um, I wasn't a Bob Seger fan until I got to know you. I mean, I... I, well, I, I listen, I liked him as a blues player, as, as a blues... But I also... Um, I, I was not a Springsteen fan till I, I got until you and I became friends, and I mean, and but, I look back now and go, "What the fuck was wrong with me?" <laughs> well, Seeger. So I sold T-shirts for Bob Seeger, <laughs> and we had my dad, who was a cantankerous guy. Um, you know, we were never that close. But one of the things that I'd left at our boyhood home is we our crew jackets for Bob Seeger were all silver. You know, satin yeah, silver yeah, jackets. Yeah. And I'd left silver one in the house. Silver bullet to her, whatever. Yeah, yeah it was. silver I don't bullet know. band. And my dad used to when he rode his. I get that mixed up with the chorus commercial. <laughs> his dad, my dad used to ride ride a little moped around. And he. he Ann Arbor? No, Gross Point. Oh, Gross Point, sorry. Yeah, sorry. And, but he would have a silver bullet 
band jacket. Some people, if I said that in some crowds, they wouldn't talk to me no, again. Bob Seger grew up in Ann Arbor, yeah, yeah. so okay. you, you had it. But here's a funny one I remember about you. Is we went down to Puerto Vallarta together, you and I. Oh, shit, we did. Yeah. With two of your groupies, and you guys would be out, and I really kind of... I would, they were groupies, but you'd be on the beach with them, and it was jump. And you guys would all be Van seeing, Halen. Van, yeah, Van Halen. Halen's jump, and you guys were jumping up on the beach, and I'm going... And then the funny part of that story, and you probably don't... You guys had left, and I had... I was on a buddy pass. Uh-huh. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I got bumped off a couple planes, and I was finally... I was out of money, and it was the last day, and I got out. I got no pesos. But I never went back to Mexico until two years ago. Because we had some good friends up here. I had some friends who would drive down to Mexico, and they got involved. They were hijacked, and a bunch of girls raped, and all that. And I just was terrified of Mexico. And so Vita and I went down two years ago down to Playa Velarte, which is south of Cancun, which is gorgeous. But I found true evil down there. And I wasn't drinking, but I found evil. Timeshare sales reps. <laughs> it, these are the worst people oh, on the no. planet. Yeah, the different type of cartel. <laughs> Holy shit. They are horrible, horrible people. And at one point, Vita, who's in an industry that doesn't tolerate evil Latins very well, and she got to the point where she was almost crying and then ran out. Out of the room. Oh, and, my God. You know, they bring one person who's nice, and then they bring a meaner one, a meaner one, and then we finally got to Helga, who worked had her training uh, for Dr. Mengele in the Third Reich. Right. And Vita, she, had the, she had the suitcase with all the, all the, the, toys. the knives and the, the screws. And the, yeah. So Vita swore at her and ran out and then realized that the port she ran out in, there was no exit, so she had to come back in. Yeah, oh. Have you ever made a scene and left and then have to come back in? That is, Pardon me? Yeah. <laughs> just disregard yeah, me just, screaming and telling you all the F off. Any episode and, of Silicon Valley is... <laughs> that, that's oh, going we have on. just started that. Oh. Yeah, uh, we're up to episode season two. Okay. What a great TV it, series. I've watched, uh, actually this morning, and then when I got up, I watched the, the episode from Sunday. It, the, the thing about this, and this is uh, the reason I was bringing up also this uh, thing when I was talking about... Um, uh, uh, Pendulette, no, yeah, pen, yeah, Pendulette and spirituality. Uh, and spirituality. So I was listening to him talk with Pete Holmes, um, who's kind of I'm a fan of and have been for years. His podcast originally, and then I kind of, you know, he had a show that came on after Conan for a while, and now he's got crashing on HBO. But he, he's he is the, these these are some actors slash comedians that have this ability to present awkwardness. In such a way that when you watch them being awkward, it's uh, you cringe, you know. And the guy on Silicon Valley does that. I can't remember the actor's v- name. Yeah, but, Richard. Yeah. Richard. Vita yeah. hates him. Yeah, because of that. That how awkward yeah. it feels to watch someone. In, and before I started watching Silicon Valley, which is only a couple of weeks, uh-huh. I, I hated him on the Verizon app. Oh yeah, well, there's, yeah, yeah. Hated. I mean, just a visceral dislike. Yes. And. He's so awkward, but the rest of the... Yeah. So think about this. How much fun would it be a showrunner or a writer on a show like that, where with HBO, you have no limits? Yeah. You can't go into a meeting. You know, or think about the guy who started Breaking Bad. He A network pitch where you're talking about... Oh, Vince Gillian. Yeah. Yeah. 
Brilliant. And Who started on the X-Files, by the way. But how is that pitch happening? And I've been on a lot of pitches that shows that have not been bought. Uh-huh. So I know it a little bit what it's like to be in the room. But to be able to sell something like that and then write creatively. And little, you know, there's a reason Better Call Saul is, a, in my opinion, a better show than Breaking Bad. Is you've got people who've worked together as a creative group. Yeah. told They've written, they've told yes. stories. Yeah. Arguably the best show on television. Yes. Breaking Bad. Yeah. Yet they come back with Better Call Saul. Yeah. And just, I'll finish up here with one thing that not germane at all, <laughs> but this is the golden age of television, and it's because you've got all these over-the-top networks. I, I, like, I agree with you. I agree it with it you. just, you know, and the craziest one is America, AMC, which started Breaking Bad. Right. Or it started with no, Mad no, Men, excuse me. Yeah, started with Mad Men. So their first show ever, they'd never done a scripted TV show uh-huh. before, and Mad Men's their first one. Right. Are, might go down on the top ten at the time it was considered the best show on television yeah. then their second show is Breaking Bad yeah which is even a better critically better show never had the audience no but it that was they, you know nowadays then they had a bomb and then they had Walking Dead uh-huh. which is the highest rated I mean 18, 19 million people on a cable network yeah NCIS is the highest rated show on regular television uh-huh. or maybe now it's it's Roseanne but well, for another week. Yeah. Oh, it's falling. 10, 12 million people. But how do you get such excellence in a cable net AMC? And it, no one's been able to do it, but that would be heaven to be a writer on a show like that. Yeah. Or a director. And just to be create something great every day. Yes, I agree. On the other hand, what you do is every day you go in and you might change someone's life, which is better. Yeah. It's make too- a lot more money being on a big television show. <laughs> but they don't make as much as they used to because they only create 10 or 12 episodes a year. That's true. Well, and it's, it's, a, it's a different model today, too. But I, the, the, you're right. I think we're, we're in a golden age of entertainment, and we're able to show reality and we're able to show life from completely different perspectives than we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, and you, you, you kind of did the flagships, and you know, it's, it's getting better. It's getting better. Well, there were 440 scripted shows that got sold last year. That's crazy. In the, in the old days, you would have, you know... Six or eight on every network, so you'd have 24 shows sold a year. Right. And with no other alternatives before cable. Yeah. And now, as they're rolling stuff out, and we've survived reality. Thank God. Well, or, not, or whatever, you know. I had the producer from Jersey Shore worked with my buddy on a show, and it was set at the Bada Bing Strip Club, and we uh-huh. sold it to True Network. And then we just couldn't deliver anything that the network liked, and I it see. never got picked up. But it was, you know, we got a deposit. We, were, uh-huh. we shot a sizzle reel and, and couldn't get a pilot. Uh-huh. But it to do reality is a lot of work. But some reality is really good. Huh. You know. I heard Jersey Shore came back. It did. Yeah. yeah. And, and on that... <laughs> On that note, well, boy, uh, you've grilled me here. (laughs) You're going to be late wherever you go. Okay, um, you you gave me um, Bob Seger. Wait, you gave me um, Walking on Sunshine. uh, Bob Seger, and I think that'll do it. Bob Seger was maybe a little feet little feet song in there. Uh, Dixie Chicken. It would that would be a good one. Yeah. But Lowell George and now the uh, what is the uh, band out of Vermont that is so big the jam band 
Fish. Fish. Yeah. They did a uh, couple years ago on on uh, Halloween. They did a whole Waiting for Columbus, which was the first live album. For yeah, Little yeah, Feet. yeah. They yeah. did it note to note, yeah. perfect. So. So I have a Little Feet story I'm not going to do tonight. We'll come back and tell that because I stayed at that artist's house in Cambridge, um, England, that that did their their covers. And I'm going to tell you the story about that. Okay. I slept well, on mattresses on the floor with, it, a, with, with uh, a, a, an entourage. I traveled Europe with two young women. I, I don't doubt that. <laughs> okay. We're going to go out the way we always do with a little Joan Osborne. Have a great week. <laughs>